0: A lot of my cartoons are dark Right, so that's why I wanted to ask you If if life
1: is dark, can you be dark in your work? I have, in fact, yeah Everybody. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm Chris Ryan, your host. My guest this week is the great cartoonist Dan Piraro. He does uh, Bizarro, which is syndicated all over the country. Um, Dan's an incredibly talented person, as you're going you're gonna to hear. He's not only uh, just an all-around brilliant guy and uh, one of the most successful cartoonists in the country, um, he's also... An extraordinarily good painter i don't have any images to show you and i i don't know if he's got his paintings up on his website i I haven't looked around that much um <clears throat> at his website, but uh go to his website it's um he's got a blog there he's got uh you know all sorts of stuff it's bizarro dot com b i z a r r o dot com you'll see who we're talking about at the time uh this interview was recorded. Probably six weeks ago, something like that. I didn't know that he was also a musician, so we didn't really talk about music at all. But subsequent to the uh, the interview, I came across an EP that he had put together and released. Uh, I think it was last year. It's called No Big Thing. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, at the end of my at the end of this intro, I'll play you out with a cut from that EP called "It's Our Time." Um, But before that, just to catch up on stuff, I've been. I've had a crazy week. I flew to Spain, had to sign some papers, do some legal stuff there that could only be done in person. So essentially, I flew to Spain in order to walk into an office, sign a couple of things, and then walk out and fly home. So that was interesting. And then while I was in Spain, I. Got uh, an email from a TV show in L.A. asking me if I could come down on Friday. I was getting back Thursday. They wanted to tape Friday, so I came home, you know, 15, 16-hour flight, whatever it was, uh, took a shower, went back to the airport, flew to L.A., and uh, then Friday morning recorded this show, which was in front of a live audience, Um, It's not a live show, not sure when it's going to air, but among the many legal forms that I signed was one saying I can't talk about this show to anyone, certainly not on a podcast like this, until it airs. So I can't tell you what show it was, Uh, network TV, daytime show, that's probably as much as I can tell you for now. I'll let you know when, when and if it airs. But, you know, I was thinking about this, and I know I ranted about L.A. I've, you know, ranted about L.A. before and, and the sort of, you know, pretending to be yourself thing. But I was thinking about how bullshit, they're like concentric circles of bullshit in Los Angeles. And the closer you get to a TV stage or production studio, the, you're getting into the inner circles of bullshit. It's just incredible you know the 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 fake cheerfulness and the 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 way oh man i don't know how to describe it if you've never been in that environment it's it if you go to la to visit it's worth being in the studio audience for a show just so you can experience that alternative reality and it's not just on camera right it's like when you're going to be on one of these shows everybody who deals with you has that same forced smile and enthusiasm. You know, everybody's telling you how brilliant you are, how great this is, how great you look. Oh, you're going to be great. Everything's so great. It's great. Oh, great. Yeah, it's it's exhausting. It's incredible. Uh Cassie and I have been watching uh binge watching this show called The Comeback, which gets into that a little bit. There are two shows that we've been watching recently that are sort of similar in this sense. Um one's called the Comeback and the other's called um oh shit, what's it called? I hate when that happens. It's called Episodes with uh Matt LeBlanc. And the comeback, interestingly, is with uh what's her name? The the tall blonde. They were both on Friends. And they're both sort of meta um in the sense that they both sort of play themselves. They both play characters who were in this big hit before and now they're still in LA and they've got the money and people recognize them but now they're sort of struggling to to stay in the game and they're both very funny and uh, highly recommended the comeback Lisa Kudrow yeah that's her name Lisa Kudrow or something Kudrow and uh and episodes they're really funny and give you an excruciatingly accurate sense of what L.A. is like as far as I can tell. Anyway, uh, Dan Piraro is one of the uh, the authentic people living in L.A. And uh, my cousin, David, is a big fan of his. So when I mentioned that I was going to be doing this interview, Dave was like, dude, that's like the only famous person you've ever met that I'd like to meet. <laughs> it's like, all right, So you hear me like, you know, very unprofessionally, like I refer to my cousin occasionally. And, you know, as a listener, you're like, who the hell is he talking to? Well, that's my cousin. Um, I was kind of out of it when I did this interview. I have to admit I had some sort of virus and uh, I was in a bit of a daze. Uh, but I just I just listen to it now. And Dan, at least Dan comes across as uh, intelligent. So he carries the interview. Speaking of being in a daze. Uh, I sort of slapped together the the podcast last week before I left for Spain, and then I got an email from a friend saying, hey, do you realize you told the same story twice in that podcast? Yeah, sorry about that. Um, I told the story about teaching high school during my conversation with Peter Gray, and then I forgot that I had done that by the time I recorded the, um, the intro. So I told it again in the intro. So if you aren't Uh, How can I say this? I've gone back and and edited out the story from the conversation with Peter Gray. So if you're listening to this sometime after January 25th, 2015, uh, and you're going back to the archives and hearing the Peter Gray, then you won't hear what I'm talking about. But it's just the same story twice. For the rest of you who did hear it, I want to assure you that I am not losing my mind, at least not that I'm aware of which let's face it if you're going to lose your mind it's better not to be aware of it right uh here's one for you this is not a this is not an advertisement but I noticed on the reddit uh conversation board there's a a a reddit uh board where people talk about the podcast um which is I think it's I'm looking for the yeah, it's tangentially speaking altogether. If you go to if you're a Reddit user just search tangentially speaking one word and you'll find the the community there. Anyway, I saw somebody uh had created a product based upon a story that I told about leaving my money belt behind in a hotel room in India. And he posted it on the, on the board there. He hasn't sent me any emails asking me or she, I don't know if it's a he or she, uh, asking me to advertise the product or anything. But I just think it's cool that, you know, somebody listened to a story I told and came up with an idea and had the gumption to go ahead and put it together. So what it is, is is it's like a money belt that you can iron into the inside of your pants, and the idea was you could forget your money belt, but you'll never forget your pants. Well, yeah, that that's probably true most of the time. Uh, anyway, it's called, the website is ironcladpockets.com. Ironclad, just the way it sounds, pockets.com. And there's a 15% discount if you use the word tangential. Now, I'm not sure if that's all in caps or not, but you try it both ways. Um, and it's pretty cool. It's like seven bucks. So it's this all-cotton pocket, and you just iron it inside your pants, and you can put your passport and money and whatever in there, and you're all set. Pretty cool idea. Could have saved me a lot of trouble back in the day. All right, the email of the week. Not that I'm going to do this every week, but interesting email from a 16-year-old guy. 16-year-olds listening to this podcast? Uh I hope you have your parents' permission. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like, you know, I'm corrupting the youth or something. Anyway, uh, 16-year-old guy, uh, he's in high school. Says he's a very good student doing four AP classes this year, but I've never felt connected to the values, beliefs, and ambitions that drive my school and which many of my classmates and my friends hold. I'm quite lazy, But also have trouble not giving a fuck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I often don't do an assignment, but then I feel bad about it. I feel like I'm supposed to be doing everything on time and perfectly. And then if I don't, I get this internal punishment. Um, But this doesn't change how I behave, only how I feel. That's an interesting distinction. I feel torn. I don't want to live a type of life laid out ahead of me by societal expectation, but honestly, I'm not sure I'm strong enough to actually break away from it. And I don't have the slightest clue what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, I don't really have any ambitions, but I have many interests. Ultimately, I just want to enjoy myself and appreciate life I'm not sure I would ever be a traveler like you were. I just want to be something other than what my circumstance leads to. I feel kind of lost because everyone around me talks and acts like there's no, no alternative to the plan. The plan, in quotation marks, of going to college, getting a house, and so on. While my desire is to, in fact, inhabit an alternative of some kind. Okay, Uh the reason I'm I'm addressing this on the podcast is that uh, this is a, a type of email that I seem to be getting a lot of these days, and although I don't consider myself <clears throat> in any sense qualified to be giving advice to the youth of America, um, there you know if you're asking, I guess I owe you something. So, um, my feeling is that first of all. Nobody has any fucking clue what they're doing at 16. And if someone tells you they do, they are full of shit. Um, so I would say if you're a 16-year-old kid and you're looking at life and saying, hey, I don't know what the hell is going on and I don't really feel comfortable making any long-term commitments to career or you know getting myself in debt or whatever, um, I'd say you're pretty smart. I think that's exactly what you should be feeling at 15. Um, The advice I gave to this guy and the advice I would give in general is to read as much as you can. Books, you know, we think books are so commonplace, and they are. Um, But there are books out there that have been written by some of the greatest minds that have ever lived. Right? You can pick up a book and be inside the brain of some of the smartest, most interesting people who have ever been alive. That's fucking amazing. That is really amazing. So the advice I gave to this guy and the advice I give to everyone is read the fuck out of this world. Read as much as you can. Find the stuff that interests you and like pull it like a thread on a tapestry until the whole thing starts to fall apart and you can see through it because that's, that's the way it goes. Just find someone you enjoy reading, whether it's novels or poetry or short stories or nonfiction or whatever it is. Be like a bloodhound. When you find a scent, run it down because it'll lead to others and then more. And the next thing you know, you're a fucking expert in something. As far as education goes, what i said to this this guy is if your parents are going to pay then why not go to a decent college university and study something that interests you but that doesn't close a lot of doors for you so in other words i my own feeling was that i want to study things that are opening my mind and enriching my perspective not narrowing my focus right At that age, you don't want to be narrowing your focus. You want to be opening as much as possible, learning, getting as much context as you can. And then later, when you've got the context, then you can focus in on whatever it is that really interests you. And the problem, I think one of the great problems with the modern world is that because there's so much information that people have to assimilate in before they get to the cutting edge of whatever field they're in. Um, in, in highly complex fields like medical research or you know, astrophysics or things you know even engineering, things like that, there's so much to assimilate that, that you have to start the specialization process at a very young age. And so then what happens? you end up having a very narrow mind. You have a very narrow experience of the world because you've spent your whole life, you know, it's like you want to be an Olympic swimmer. Okay, well, you better start swimming your ass off when you're like seven years old and, you know, be lucky that you've got the physical build and the heart and the lungs and all that to, to have a chance of being in the upper echelons of world-class swimmers or tennis players or astrophysicists or, you know, or medical researchers or surgeons or whatever. That's okay. Maybe that's great because you get faster and faster swimmers and, and, you know, valve replacement surgeons that are better than they used to be. But the problem is those aren't necessarily healthy, happy people. Those are people with extremely limited experience. So, you know, it's like purebred dogs end up all fucked up because they don't, mutts are the smart dogs, right? Smart, to, in my experience, smart, interesting people are people who've done a lot of things, who've seen a lot of stuff, not someone who's, you know, the world's leading expert in, you know, the the use of meter in Milton's early poetry. Who gives a fuck, man? I mean, you know, great if that really interests you, but is that someone you want to hang out and talk to at a cocktail party? Anywho, um, And the last thing I said is, you know, if your parents aren't paying, <clears throat> and, and what I would recommend for someone like this, he's obviously got – uh, intellect and, uh, you know, you find something you enjoy, then then you don't beat yourself up when you don't do your homework as you do your homework. You know, it's, you enjoy it. I, I really enjoyed my time in college. I was reading great stuff. I was reading really interesting things. And to me, reading is like as close as you can get to travel, but it's actually more than travel in a sense, because you're traveling into someone's mind and you're traveling to different different times right i mean now if you travel you got to go to you know india in 2015 bali in 2015 thailand in 2015 but if you're reading you can go you know to 17th century russia you can go to you know to go with joseph conrad up the fucking congo in the 1880s or whenever he did he uh, did that trip that later led to heart of darkness You know, you go with Melville on a fucking whaling boat and get shipwrecked on an island in Taipei and Umu. Everyone thinks Herman Melville, they think of Moby Dick. Moby Dick's a tough, it's kind of a tough read because it's a little chaotic. Um, The key to reading Moby Dick is to understand that it's a comedy. That it's funny as hell. But people don't understand that they get intimidated by it because it's this big classic American book, blah blah blah, all these serious professors bloviating about it. Moby Dick is hilarious. It opens with the um Ishmael, or the guy who calls himself Ishmael, uh in bed with a fucking cannibal. All right, and, he, and he's not only is there like this weird homoerotic stuff going on throughout the book. But he's in bed with a fucking cannibal in the very first chapter of the book. And he's like kind of nervous as you, you know, who wouldn't be nervous? You're sharing a bed with a cannibal in a cheap motel somewhere, right? Um, yeah, there's some crazy, hilarious stuff that goes on in Moby Dick. But people don't get it because they're they're taking it seriously. They think it's a fucking, you know, opera or something. Um Anyway, so so for me, studying literature is a great way to learn about the world, learn about personalities, family dynamics, experience. You read Charles Dickens, you're in the slums of 18th century London, you know? How else are you going to get there? You can watch a movie, but movies are so much more limited in in what they can discuss and how, how deeply you can really experience something. Um, anyway, I said to him, uh, if if you got, if you have to go into debt to go to school, I would uh, seriously reconsider. You know, I'd explore first, get, get a job, check stuff out, do a lot of reading. Be sure you know what you want to do, because in this country, university is a scam. It's just another mechanism to extract money from the middle classes and leave you in debt. And slavery. Everyone pretends university is a necessity to the good life. But that's bullshit. Uh, And the debt you end up with will will have you hooked into a system forever. I think that um, rather than getting into debt, going to university, consider other things. You know, really smart people can be fantastic plumbers, carpenters, cabinet makers, um, electricians. You can make a lot more money, have your own business, set your own hours. Uh, Those jobs aren't going to be exported to third world countries where the labor rates are lower because as long as people are living in this country, they're going to need electricians and plumbers and carpenters and so on. Learn a skill. You'll have a lot of control over your life. Go to college, get a Ph.D. in something you're not really interested in or a B.A. A B.A.'s worth nothing. Ph.D., you end up overqualified uh, for just about everything. If I had to apply for jobs right now, I'd be, honestly, I'd be very um, hesitant to even include the fact that I have a Ph.D. because it would exclude me from most of the jobs I'd probably be applying for. So that's the reality As I see it, for what it's worth. Uh, For those of you who are not 16 looking for advice, (laughs) sorry, I just bored the fuck out of you with that. Uh, Anyway, that's enough for me. Uh, I'm going to play you out with uh, Dan's song here. It's called It's Our Time, and it's from the EP called No Big Thing, which you can find on Amazon. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, uh, and go check out Dan's website and his, his fantastic work. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Dig it.
2: <laughs> Commit a crime with me if we don't get caught, I'm pretty sure it isn't wrong Somebody spots us, we can swim to Hong Kong In the morning, everywhere we used to cross, it's our song Listen to the butterflies falling from the sky It's our time and we won't sleep through We can't lose love. Us. Come dance with me on the grave of Jesus Christ himself. If the music's right, we'll start a revolution. Everybody can free themselves. Why isn't everybody already free? Because they're worth too much money. We'll dance that away It's our time. Yeah, yeah, yeah We'll hit the street and make a splash And everyone will know that we at least had a gas Falling for each other Falling twenty stories Our yeah. It's our time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right, I'm here on a rainy Los Angeles afternoon with Dan Perraro, who is my cousin's favorite artist, comic book artist. What what would I say, Dave? All the above. All the above. Bizarro is the name of the comic.
0: That's right, but it's not a comic book. It's a newspaper comic.
1: Right. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Cartoon, comic, what's the difference? Yeah, cartoon,
0: comic, all those words work. But the book is where you went wrong because it's not a car. I'm not a. I'm not a comic book artist. Oh, did I
1: say comic book? Oh, yeah. Well,
0: I'm only saying that for people who, listening who maybe have never heard from me. So I, think, sh- I should cut and start, start over again. I
1: fucked up 37 seconds in. That's that's a new record. <laughs> that sets me at ease though. I actually like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so have you? You've never done a book, a collection. Well,
0: I've yeah. they have put a lot of books together. They've put right. a lot of. I have a I don't know, 16 or 18 books out of compilations of my work right. but they're not comic books right they're, they're books they're of comics. single panel yes yeah, are they panel. all single panel yes yeah single panel um, yeah i mean a newspaper comic works in the in the sense that uh, in the you know in the week time, uh, weekdays monday through saturday you have one shape and then on sunday you have the big horizontal shape and so i i have done multi panel cartoons in sunday comics like the mm-hmm. big format But typically, it's one panel. Even on Sundays, it's typically one
1: panel. Right. Yeah. So, and uh, you're obviously highly successful. You're, um, what's the word, uh, when you're all over the country? Oh, syndicated. Syndicated. Yeah, I was going to say synchronized. You're synchronized. (laughs) Uh, To some degree, some synchronicity gets well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It seems like a really tough gig.
0: Well, it it is and it isn't. It's um, the... You know, the easy part is drawing a comic a day. Right. That's the easy part. Just drawing a comic a day. The hard uh. part is writing a comic a day. Uh. Yeah. So there's the, you know, drawing a comic might take me an hour or two, and then I can toddle off to my ballet lessons or my yachting class or whatever. But the rest of the, uh, but but uh, writing a gag is what takes forever. Yeah. You know, you don't know. I mean, a... Uh, I've I've uh, I started in 1985, so I've actually this is my. In fact, next month is my 30th anniversary. Wow, 365 days a year. So you've never had a respectable years. job? Oh, I have. Yeah. Oh, you have. Yeah. Okay. Now I was going to say I published over 10,000 comics. So that's 10,000 ideas. Yeah. And just coming up with an idea a day is hard enough usually, but then of course you'll have a divorce. <laughs> you know, or uh, your dog will die, or yeah. you get the flu, and you still have to come up with a f- you know a funny yeah. idea every day. And <laughs> yeah. that's when I, in those times of my life, is when I have really wished I'd been an accountant or something, right. where I was you know just doing a process that I could just do. You just phone it in, yeah. But to be utterly miserable, physically or emotionally, and have to sit down and come up with silly ideas for your goddamn cartoon strip. Yeah, you know that's yeah. the only times when it's really bad, yeah, but the rest of the, but I've, I've, I've actually made it through oh two or three major life crises now and uh, and never missed a deadline, so now I kind of don't worry as much about it. I just think, oh i will be fine
1: you know I, I was we were talking before I turned on the mics about uh, how uh, Dave and I were talking about how I was going to do this with you, and I remember the the first thing that happened was somebody sent me. One of your uh, comics that was uh, the evolutionary thing, the fish coming out of the slime and then evolving into different mammals and eventually man. And the man is dumping trash back into the ocean that it came out of. And that was what inspired me to get in touch with you. I thought, that is a guy. I like the way this guy thinks. That's a really dark statement. There. A lot of my cartoons are dark.
0: Right. Yeah, so that's why I, I wanted to ask you I, if yeah. life
1: is dark, can you be dark in your work? I
0: have. In yeah. fact, yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, some of my some of my darkest car- cartoons have come out of divorce, I think. But but they're actually also funny, I think. Divorces, it's an easier it's easier to make divorce funny because everybody's been through it and once it's over and gone and behind you, you're okay again and then you can laugh about it, you know. So there's an audience for that. But making the um the sort of arrogant destruction of the planet funny is maybe not as easy. So sometimes I don't worry about whether or not it's funny. I just want it to be clever and provocative and interesting. Right. And that's something that – I mean, off the – of course, editorial cartoonists do that all the time. But there's a, there's a very distinct division in newspapers. They want meaningful comics to be on the editorial page. And they want funny comics to be on the funny pages – so if they buy, and they don't buy me as an editorial cartoonist, they buy me as a or just a humor cartoonist. Is that because of how you present yourself? Yeah, that's how it's so. I mean, it's, you know, 340 days out of the year, it's just meant to be something sort of strange or funny. And, and you know, depending on every, and every now and then I, I put darker messages in there just because it's what I'm thinking about. But... Mm. Um, people on the funny pages typically don't do that. A lot of cartoonists are afraid to do that because you can get into some hot water. If people start complaining, then editors are losing work time because of your damn cartoon that they could replace with something else that right. isn't controversial and no one's going to ever write to them about it and maybe they should just do that today mm. and you get the phone call. You know, right. So it's like you do run a certain risk. Um, but I still... I, I um, I've always been the kind of guy who wants to be proud of the work I did regardless of how much money it made or and I you know and I don't want to come off sounding like a saint cuz god knows I've spent a lot of years complaining about the fact that I haven't made that much money as a cartoonist whereas other guys who are doing completely in my opinion less interesting work are millionaires you know and like mm. there's just that whole thing where you it's very easy to uh, compare upward instead of sideways or downward yeah uh, and and, and then I always immediately tell myself, because I don't want to give you the, bad, the wrong opinion, I mean the wrong idea, but I, I immediately tell myself that 99% of the people in the world have a less interesting, less lucrative job than I do, right. so stop complaining, you fucking baby. Right. You know, and, then I, and then I think, yes, you're right, That's, you know, I'm not Jim Davis, I didn't set out to write Garfield, and that's why I don't have six hundred million dollars in the bank. <laughs> really? You know, just never six hundred million dollars.
1: Well, Garfield?
0: yeah. I mean, have you ever known a child that didn't own some kind of a Garfield product yeah. of some sort? You know, yeah. whether it's everything from washcloths to slippers to yeah. stuffed animals to pajamas them. to yeah. sex toys. I mean, they you know they market the hell out of those Garfield kinds of sex toys. Got to get me one of those. I I hope they have them. I don't. <laughs> I haven't actually seen one, but I would love to design one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, you know the story about Japanese sex toys? Why they ne- none of them look like uh, penises? Because it's illegal? I was going to say, I assume it's illegal. They have a lot of strange it's, it's laws in Japan opinion. about yeah. what
0: is and isn't illegal in terms of yeah. pornography. And... Yeah. I, I don't know what those laws yeah, are. You but... can't
1: show an erect penis in the porn, so it's always sort of blurred out. Oh, the pixelated penis. Right. Yes. And um, the sex toys, I, they're very... Uh, unashamed about sex, so it 's a strangely uninhibited culture from an American perspective, but they do have these very strict laws that um, they 've got all these sex toys, but they can 't be shaped like genitalia so that 's why <laughs> all the like Japanese vibrators and dildos are you know like a sailor on, you know with a puppy dog on his boat or uh, you know, that 's a, a bunny rabbit or, yeah <laughs> <laughs> i 've known people who have collected. Just like
0: uh, uh, phallus symbols from various cultures and stuff like that. But I think it would be much more interesting to, to collect non-phallic symbol Japanese dildos. Right. That would be more interesting. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. more
1: meta. Yeah. It's- yeah. Uh, this has nothing to do with anything. I don't even know why I'm thinking of this. Something about the meta. I was reading recently, uh, back in the 20s when they were doing blackface, uh, you know, on, on vaudeville and vaudeville right. and jazz clubs. Uh, they started to relax the laws a little bit. So, of course, these are all Jewish musicians who put blackface on pretending right, to be right. black, right? And, but they, people still recognized that the black musicians were the best. And so they started to relax the laws a little bit to allow some of the black musicians to play on stage with the Jewish musicians. Right. But the stipulation was that the black musicians had to also apply black paint to their face. So they're, they're black guys in blackface <laughs> No way, I had no idea And that is supremely humiliating in some way Or no just kidding. ridiculous, I don't know what it is <laughs> yeah, well, they just, I guess they
0: just wanted everybody to match
1: yeah, Everybody yeah. on stage to match For some reason, Japanese oh dildos reminded me of that story I have no idea why but I've, done a, I've actually done a
0: couple of cartoons about Mickey Mouse being a black performer Who was forced to perform in Whiteface I was always kind of proud of that concept. Yeah. The first cartoon I did was um a, a uh, it was uh, what was it? it was oh yeah it was Mickey Mouse I like, on a morning interview show or something and I ran it in February which is Black History Month in the United States and uh, and I think he was just complaining that you know that um, no you know black Hun- Black History Month comes and goes every year and nobody ever mentions that I've been I'm a black performer in Hollywood who's been forced to perform in whiteface for over fifty years. And then there was another one that I could never publish, but I use it in comedy shows. I've done stand-up comedy shows and things, and I show cartoons and tell stories.
2: Yeah.
0: And this one, I, mean, I know that you know, describing cartoons over the radio or podcasts is not the best idea, but then again, I've never been one to always go for the best idea. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> go for the worst idea. So there's
0: another cartoon. This is one of my favorite cartoons I've ever done, but I can't publish it anywhere because I would be sued into the Stone Age but it's a couple guys in a locker room, and then behind them down the bench a bit is Mickey Mouse in the same locker room and he's changing his clothes and so he's naked and he has this enormous black cock and it's just solid black like the rest of his body. And then the, one of the normal, you know, human guys says to the other, right, wow, I guess it's true what they I guess it's really true what they say about black guys. <laughs> and it's I mean, you know, and when I show this in a nightclub, here's what's interesting is that in the middle of the country, people just immediately burst out laughing and they will laugh and laugh and laugh just at the sight of Mickey Mouse with this giant black penis. And it's flaccid, of course. It's not an erection or anything. It's just, you know, twice the size of either leg. It's just a very big (laughs) penis hanging off of Mickey Mouse. Uh, And um, But then when I show it on the, Especially, well, like if you show it in New York, it takes people way to beat, and then they laugh. Show it in California, and you always get about fifteen seconds of oh, really because <laughs> the political correctness on yeah. the on the coast here in the West Coast yeah. is so fine tuned. And I always have to chide them. And I say, "Oh, come on! You know you want to laugh. Give into it." And then I have to give. I give them an excuse. I say, "It's not that often that you see a cartoon that makes fun of racism." And Disney at the same time, and then they have permission to laugh because mm. I've told them that it's making fun of racism. Uh. I was just—it just, just became this kind of interesting sociological experiment to me to show that cartoon in different states and see yeah. what kind of reaction you get. You know how quickly people will laugh at it.
1: Yeah, the the American sensitivity to that kind of humor is is striking. You know, for mm. for Casilda and me, it having lived me in crazy. Spain for yeah. so long, come back and people are so eager to be offended. I know, it's, it's a nation of victims. Yeah. I was just
0: complaining about this the other day. I did a cartoon about a chiropractor and I got this complaint from a chiropractor's assistant <laughs> who told me to refrain from such absurdities about chiro- about chiropractic in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come <laughs> on, you know. But, every, but everybody in the United... Yeah, you know, so many people in the United States are just waiting for a reason to be indignant about something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, They just love it.
1: Yeah. It's a strange thing. And it puts you in an interesting position because you're sort of in the danger zone there, right? I mean, Oh, it's the... the Political
0: correctness is the the arch enemy of any kind of comedy. Yeah. You know? Because... And and also, you know, there's so much... There's so many social statements that can be made about important issues through comedy. But if you're not allowed... To do it, yeah, you know, in the 60s during the uh, civil rights movement, there was a great deal of online, I mean online. <laughs> there was no online then. It wasn't invented yet. There was a lot of uh, on stage comedy about racism. Right. And it's very hard to get away with that stuff now. You've got, you, well, for one thing, if you're going to do a joke about racism, you have to be black.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. and
0: that didn't used to be the case. You know, right. we all had an even hand right. where we could all just talk about the political... Um, Events of the day, and it's not true anymore. And I, I, yeah, but I love to push buttons. I'm a very anti-homophobic type. You know, one of few things annoy me more than than uh, the the whole the the battle that gays and lesbians have had to go through to get married and to be just to be treated like normal people in this country. Uh, And so when I do a a gay marriage joke, it's always pro gay marriage you know i mean that's always my intention and i think that and of course i'm trying to be careful not to be heavy-handed i don't want it to be some kind of a brickbat about gay marriage so i try to make it sort of subtle but invariably i get a certain amount of hate mail from gays and lesbians who think that i'm making fun of them because they're so used to it you know but also because this uh, this country just has this uh We have such a thing now about about being and, you know, part of it is, I think, because celebrities give into it. Um, You know, if you're worried about your career being ruined and so you have to you have to come out with some kind of a, quote, unquote, heartfelt apology. If you even accidentally say anything that was utterly misinterpreted as racism and it gets in the news. Right. And then you go into rehab. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> then you have to go to an anger Therapy. management class. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but instead of saying, look, yeah. that's not what I said, it's not what I meant, it's out of context, don't be ridiculous. No, yeah. instead they say, you know, they go through this big, long, right. and then it appears, you know, athletes,
1: everybody has to do this. Feed the monster. Yeah. I mean, I've often said, if what a different country this would be if when Bill Clinton were running for president the first time, and they did that 60 Minutes interview, and they asked about, you know, the women and all that, yeah. and he said, you know, I've disrespected my marriage and he sort of did the pseudo-apology. What a different country this would be if he and Hillary had just said, that's our private life. Fuck off. Yeah. You know, just fuck off. It's yeah. none of your business. Right. Right? If, you, if we're running for political office, if you agree with our policies, vote for us. If you don't, vote against us. Yeah. Who I fuck uh, is none of your business. I you remember know? saying that oh, same thing man. at the
0: time. How, how can you, you know, it's like, no, he's supposed to be a moral leader. He's like, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, look, if, if you need heart surgery... Right. And the best heart surgeon in town cheats on his wife. Yeah, are you going to use him anyway? Yeah. And what's more important than saving your life? And what's more important than having a decent uh, president in the White House? I mean, you know, you don't want a guy you want who's who you can feel good about having a beer with. Right. You want somebody who's way the hell smarter than you. He's not your daddy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, but who's going to run the? And I don't care what he does in his private life. And anybody in this country who doesn't think that those kinds of political marriages are anything more than political marriages is
1: insanely naive. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think of the, what was the thing with Kevin Spacey, the House of Cards, they did a good job on that, Uh, showing how that's a very uh, political marriage. There was Um, a bird in the house. A bird. It just flew right through. It's amazing. that's,
0: that's, That's just my alarm that goes off when I
1: to remind me that I forgot to turn my phone off like a dumbass. <laughs> no, um, I my forgot, forgot to turn mine off, too, but nobody <laughs> calls me, luckily. Uh, I was thinking about all this stuff recently with the whole Bill Cosby situation. Oh, you know? boy. What a mess, huh? No kidding. But I was thinking about how the the people who are uh, constantly offended and, and sort of You know, watching every word you say, and if you don't, if you don't talk about rape in the way they want you to, and Mm -hmm. you don't automatically assume that the woman is telling the whole truth, and you know, I mean, there are people who are actually arguing that you know we should assume that the man is guilty unless Mm. he's proven otherwise, and so they're sort of undermining. That's in the
0: Constitution, isn't
1: it? Yeah, (laughs) in the uh, the (laughs) anti-constitution. But anyway, I mean, not to get into the rape thing, but just about how. Uh, shutting down these open conversations. Yeah, the yeah. people who are doing that think that they're helping the victims, and I would argue that what they're actually doing is enabling the the violence. Uh, because they provide darkness yeah. where that stuff happens. The reason priests could fuck little boys for so long is that no one would talk about it. Right? It was not something you would talk about in polite company, right? You yeah. don't raise I think that priest is, you know, God. Yeah. you just couldn't talk about it. Yeah. So that gave him the, the yeah. modus operandi. And furthermore,
0: furthermore in those days, parents couldn't talk to their children about that exactly. kind of stuff and, exactly. and empower them to do something about it. And so then, of course, when it happened, the kid didn't think that they could talk to their parents about right. it. Right. I, you know, no, I was, I was raised Catholic, and I went to Catholic school. I was an altar boy. I was around priests uh, before and after class—I mean, before and after uh, mass many times. And it would have—I was a prime target, and thank God nothing ever happened to me. But I know damn well that if it had, I wouldn't have had the guts to tell my parents. Right. I would have carried it into my adulthood and ended up going through hypnosis to <laughs> recall it and therapy and all that kind of stuff, you know, to try to heal myself. But— yeah, I agree. I I, I I think that even just politically correct language, to some degree, provides a it provides a camouflage in a way. It's it's like a what am I trying to say? It's a, it's like a false facade.
3: It right. enables
0: people it enables people to pretend that they've changed their minds by using the correct words. Right. But does it actually change societies? Does it change your mind? Exactly. Um, I've I've now lived through, I think, four different polite terms for people with dark skin when right. when i was born yeah, colored when black. i was born colored was polite right then it was negro right then it was black and now it's african-american right and it's like well um how many years will this last and and it's and it's often i find that it's most often guilty white liberals who insist on that kind of language right black people them, themselves as far as i can see still call themselves black Right, and that was their word in the first place. Right. So you know, I, I, I think if I were African American, uh, I would resent that the like it was like you know the sixties, the civil rights movement, and he's like let's own it, let's call ourselves black, you know. Yeah. And I always thought that was like sort of a point of pride. Yeah, and then and then I would think, well, who who decided to call us African American, which is incredibly unwieldy. Um, on the Olympics, when the whole African American thing first became. Um, Standard for television network uh, anchorman and people like that. You know, it's like it just sort of hit like a wave one year. Everybody, all right, you now say African American. It was it was a Winter Olympics year, and there was an American commentator on TV. And at that year, there was a very talented um, black female French skater, (laughs) and he called her the African American from France. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nice i was about 14 years old and
1: still even then i just burst out laughing i was like that's
0: the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard
1: yeah it, i may have told this story on the podcast before cassie and i were sitting in a denny's in in uh, northern california somewhere we were driving up to oregon and the woman at the next table started chatting with cassie and you know, she's exotic looking, and the woman said, So, where are you from? Is Mozambique. And the woman was just blank, like Mozambique, you know. Yeah. Uh, she, Cassie said, Well, it's in Africa, in the south of Africa. And the woman paused for a while, and then she said, So, is everyone there African American? <laughs> 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 yeah, kind of. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, but I mean, you, you know, what you're saying about the arbitrariness of the term, one thing that drives me nuts in this country is. The N word and the C word and the, which you
0: can't even say on this podcast for well, fear of the kind no, of back, the, I, the blowback. Well, that's <laughs> the thing. Is like I have that same I have that absolute same pet peeve yeah. to see Peter Jennings reporting a racism story on ABC News Tonight and saying the N word. I'm like, what yeah. are we, a nation of kindergartens? Yeah, we yeah. can't. It's, we can't understand
1: context. And what happens when there are two N words? Is there like the N one word and the N two
3: word? Oh you know? gosh,
1: now you have got me confused. I can't. I'm trying to think about the second word. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's the C word. Yeah, it's it's inane. It's it's a very it, strange. It's, it's childish. There's I mean, in really Spain, it's just childish. I, I may be wrong. Spanish people can correct me if I am, but I don't believe there's anything like that in Spain in the Spanish language. There's no yeah. word you refer to but don't say. Right, you know, it's well.
2: It
0: just it gives so much power. I, I go. I can a-
1: actually extend this all the way to,
0: to just profanity. You know, the five, d- dirty words for TVFCC c- c- and all, all that stuff. Tics. Exactly. Yeah. To, it's like it's it's like a it's superstition. It, it has nothing to do with the meaning of the word, right? Or the context or anything else. It's the yeah. word itself that is magical.
1: Well, you remember when it used to be prohibited to say something sucked. Yeah, if you said something sucked, it meant suck dick, right? And now it's that on you know yeah. TV everywhere. Oh, that sucks! You suck! Ooh, sucks. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, exactly. what happened there?
0: When did that happen? I, uh, I, I guess some somebody fell asleep. I'm old, the wheel. is what happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enough time went past exactly. that people got tired of it. Yeah, yeah, I get I get crazy about that. Um,
1: is I, that why our crumb moved to France? Was he was he uh, anti American? Is was he a curmudgeon? I, I don't
0: I don't think so. Um from what I know, um Crum, of course he had a he had a, a very successful career. Everybody knew his work, but he never made a nickel off of it because he didn't have an agent and was such a terrible businessman, like what? most artists. Oh no. So at some point, he was still, he was like 50 years old and still a starving artist and everybody in the country was using his work. It had never been licensed properly and that kind of thing. So he, um, he ended up uh, putting together, uh, he ended up selling his sketchbooks. He had a huge stack of sketchbooks where he had just drawn incessantly day after day for years and years and years. And somebody uh, gave him a lot of money and traded him a French castle for this stack of sketchbooks. Really? And that's why he moved to France.
1: No shit. That's not bad. That's a uh, there's more to it to the story. story, but
0: that much of the story I've heard from a number of sources, including a documentary film about him. So I assume it's true. Right.
1: <laughs> that's pretty sweet. You see any yeah. French castles in your future?
0: Uh, I don't, you know, I don't keep sketchbooks the way he did it. I'm, I'm not as crazy as R. Crumb. I mean, Robert Crumb, you should, have you ever seen the documentary Crumb? You obviously haven't.
1: I, or you would know I that story. I may but, have. Well, well, maybe not. The interesting thing know. is
0: that he's he's really kooky. Yeah. He's, he's like a deeply complex person. Yeah. And str- But str- he's like barely functional, really. Oh. Um, but as strange as that, as as dysfunctional as he is, he, what's really amazing about the documentary is they also interview a lot with his brother and his mom. Oh, that I haven't seen And he's yet. the most, by far... The most functional person in that family. Oh. He comes from just like a family you wouldn't even believe was real if you saw it in a movie. You know, uh, I mean, if you saw it, and in, there is a movie. If you saw it, if you saw it in a drama, <laughs> right. you just go, "Oh, come on, right? Nobody's that crazy." Now that family's that crazy. Right. So yeah, he's a pretty strange dude. But he was. I think that part of his uh, mental obsession was just drawing constantly. So he had you know tons and tons and tons of work, and it was worth a lot of money, and somebody paid him for it. So I don't have that kind of. Uh, I could sell my originals, though. I have, you know, a lot of original artwork from all the cartoons I did over the years. And you're a painter. I've always wanted to be a painter. (laughs) And um, that was, um, I was just one of those lucky people who got a lot of painting genes.
1: Were Uh, Were your parents artists?
0: They were—they're not, but they're both—they both—they're both artistic. They have—they're—they're mm. good with their hands, good with crafts and things like that. They can both draw fairly well, but they've never used it really. I mean, my mother does a lot of crafts and things that—that um, that, you know, like the kind of things that older ladies will make. Uh, pin pincushions and...
2: Uh, just, you know,
0: quilts yeah. and s- sweatshirts with jewels on them. You know, I mean, all that kind of stuff. But she's good at it. She's very yeah. good at it. Yeah. You know. she's got the all my sisters are good at it, but I think I got a double gene. I think I got a gene from both of them. Um, my uh, my special lady friend, Olive Oil, would argue that I'm an old soul and I've been a painter before and that's why I was so good at it. But And maybe that's true. I don't know how I feel about the old soul, young soul model. It certainly... M- It certainly makes a lot of sense, just in terms of the way people behave. But, um, and we can talk about that in a minute. Actually, I would would be interested in what you think about that stuff. But uh, as a, so I I could always draw. Just I I was a really good artist as a little kid. My parents noticed it by the time I was three. I was drawing like a five-year-old, and uh, (laughs) way ahead of your time. (laughs) Way ahead. But, uh, and I always, as a kid, growing up, I always thought I was going to be an artist. I was just going to be a painter. Um, but I had, I, I, was, I was raised in Oklahoma, t- two cities, Ponca City and Tulsa. Um, and they're just as small as they sound. Ponca City? Ponca City. Ponca City. That's an Indian word, P-O-N-C-A, the Ponca Indians. Ah. Ponca City. Yeah, it's a, it's a one-horse town. It's like a one-post office town.
1: Kind of presumptuous to call itself a city, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I
0: know it is. It's it's um, it's barely a village, really. No, it's probably a town now. I guess it's, at that time it was a really small town. Now it's probably twice as big. But anyway, I haven't been there. Um, and then Tulsa, which is all which, which is a city, but a very small city in Oklahoma. So um, we didn't know any artists. We didn't know any made, anybody that made a living as an artist. My parents. My dad was a petroleum engineer. My mother was a a Housewife, you know, from the old days, kind of a so I, I had absolutely no reference point, I had no idea how to become an artist, mm. uh, become a fine artist. And I got a scholarship to art school, and I quit after a semester because I hated it so much. Um, so, so, that didn't work. Was where was that? That was uh, University of Washington, uh, no, Washington University in St. Louis. Oh, uh-huh. that's what it was. Um, and at the time, they were they were teaching all this um, incredibly uh, esoteric kind of, uh, what do you call it, something, conceptual art. Yeah. I don't even know, that. I, I, I can't even remember it's the, the name, I, I dislike it so much. Yeah, that's the C word for me. Yeah, it was, it was like literally in my first semester, um, a guy who...
1: Now, now, now my phone is ringing. Jeez, this, this is a game. disaster. Huh? Steely Dan. Break. Steely Dan, <laughs> Hey 19. I've
0: heard I've heard Steely Dan on your podcast before.
1: <laughs> I love Steely Dan. I, I'm a big Steely Dan fan. I'm a fan of irony in, in art, you know? Yeah. Like that song Hey 19 so ironic. But yeah. you know, I, I yeah. can't say I know the
0: lyrics of that song cuz I was not well, a Steely Dan it's fan. It's
1: all it's like he's got this girlfriend who's 19. Yeah. And he says Hey 19 that's Aretha Franklin. And she don't remember the Queen of Soul, right? So it's just uh-huh. like, oh, jeez, really? And then the the chorus is the Cuervo Gold, the fine Colombian, make tonight a wonderful thing. So it's like without the tequila and the Coke, this yeah. <laughs> this wouldn't be happening. Yeah, yeah. Yet yeah anyway uh what are we talking about uh didn't like art school conceptual oh, art. art so this guy this guy art, yeah.
0: turns in a uh, pile of broken glass with like a two-page explanation of what kind of social media uh, has, right, and he gets right. an a yeah and i drew something that actually looked like what i was trying to do and i got a c and that was what made me i thought yeah and that was what was happening at the yeah. time you know and i'm i'm very much a classical artist and uh i'm not interested in producing or learning anything about conceptual arts it's not my thing it
1: leaves me cold and so i quit um. is it bullshit i mean as an artist because <laughs> i've always felt it's bullshit i go oh. to the museum of Modern okay well Art since we're like, oh here's a white canvas i look at that i say that's bullshit that's a like, that's a guy who's making a bunch of money like yeah. by brazening it out you know, yeah. He, yeah, it's a bluff.
0: Yeah, well, well, since we're of a uh, like mind on this, I definitely would love to go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> there is a painting in a museum that is solid black, and it's called Paris at Night. Right. And uh, and, and you're right, it's bullshit. It's like, what what other art form gets away with that shit? Yeah. Um. Could you could could a, no matter how famous an author was, could you publish in a completely blank book, an 800 page black uh, blank hardcover <laughs> novel? Yeah, or all, all X's with just a title. Yeah, yeah or just X's, yeah, or just yeah. nonsense, and get away with it. Does yeah. anyone do that? Is there such a thing as conceptual novel novelizations?
2: Well,
1: maybe in poetry. <laughs> it's not even a word.
2: Well, in poetry, <laughs> you know, yeah, Lacan like yeah, and
0: like in music. I mean, you you know, you have people that just like will bang on a trash can for forty minutes and call yeah. it music or whatever yeah. because they're. But you know, nobody buys into that. But in the fine art world, in the in the visual arts, people buy into it all the time, and. I don't get it. I just don't get it. Yeah, It's part of, I think, what has led to the fine art business becoming an investment business and have nothing any longer to do with art. Right. No matter how good you are, you, you're not likely to be able to get a show at a decent gallery unless you have the right resume, studied at the right place, uh, you know, at the right institute, have shown at the correct... You have to have a good resume. I was told this once because my people... Respond very well to my paintings. In fact, you should look at the few that are in that in that room over there. Um, and I've had gallery owners. I, I've sh- occasionally I'll, I will put a painting in a group show, and I always get any number of gallery owners saying, w- "Where have you been? How are you? Where are you doing all this stuff?" I'd love to talk to you about representing you. And then I show them, you know. And then I go and talk to them, and they want to know my resume. Well, I I went to high school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I dropped out of art school after one month and i've been a cartoonist ever since and they're like "Mm, mm, no that's not gonna work
1: (laughs) it's incredible
0: yeah and and then it's like well we can't really ask much money for your work because you weren't trained anywhere it's like what
1: yeah yeah i mean that's
0: what art has become
1: I mean, it, it's like horse racing, where the ho- if the horse isn't from the right farm...
0: Then he doesn't it, get to race. Yeah, even
1: though it's faster than the other horses. Right, you exactly. Know? It's like, exactly. The one area where I think there is the same sort of bullshit is in um, science and philosophy. Mm. Uh, Do you hear about the, the guys who sent in a paper that was complete nonsense and it was published in the journal... It was some f- philosophical <laughs> you know, I,
2: journal. I, oh, oh no. yeah.
1: They, they wrote this paper and it was just all, you know, uh, jargon. Just all, mm. you know, the phenomenology of whatever, I don't know, blah, 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 all that stuff. And they published it. And then they came out and said, yeah, that was nonsense. We, we sent that in to prove a point. Yeah. And uh, thank you very much. And then they got in trouble. I think one of them got fired from his teaching position for daring to call out the bullshit of yeah, academia. Yeah, talk
0: about firing the wrong person. Nah, yeah. That, but yeah, that, there, there are artists, there are even artists who openly declare that they are frauds. And that becomes the art. That's part of
1: the art, yeah. That's
0: part of the... Oh, I want to buy a piece from the guy, a piece of crap from a guy who openly declares that he's a fraud, and I'm going to spend $150,000 for it. I think part of that is just the bravado of being able to show all your friends that I spent $150,000 on something that everyone knows is worthless. Yeah. You know? It's like a point of uh, status or something.
1: Well, bringing it back to comedy, I'm reminded of Andy Kaufman. Oh, yeah. Who definitely wasn't bullshit, but he was turning twisting everything oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. on itself yeah, and very that,
0: existential kind of yeah just avant-garde to the max yeah and you know that well here's another sad thing that with the corporatization of america andy andy kaufman wouldn't have a chance in hell of ever being heard of in this in our current society um he you know he was discovered through comedy clubs and places uh but those places won't take comics like that anymore they don't take anyone who's outside the routine and I know a guy that's a, a comedian in, uh, in San Francisco. Well, he was in San Francisco for years and became very well known there. Uh, and now he's moved to London. His name is Will Franken. Uh, and he's, he's, he's similar to like early Robin Williams, early Andy Kaufman in the sense that he's so talented and so strange and so different that he blows people away. He always gets a standing ovation and he, he garners an immense following instantly. Comedy clubs won't let him perform because they have this hierarchy. You got to you got to be the opener and then you got to be the this guy and then you move your way up the chain. And they know that they can't nobody wants to follow that act. You can't open with your best act. Mm. But they can't move him to the end and make him the act. Right. He doesn't because have then security. all the other guys because believe me, no matter how talented a stand-up comic is and no matter how much the audience loves him, they're going to fail next to this guy because he's like a one it's like a one-man Monty Python troupe doing different characters and like in incredibly uh, just like machine gun fast uh, material, absolutely like cutting right to the bone of all kinds of social issues. He's just flat fucking brilliant, and people don't want to be on stage with him. So in San Francisco, he ended up having to rent bars to perform in, uh. and he got very very popular. And then he went to Edinburgh Comedy Festival, but the the same thing has happened with comedy clubs. Like they don't, you know, Andy Kaufman wouldn't even be heard of now. Because everybody has to have this routine stand up and do your routine gags, right. I've had trouble because I do a little bit of trouble here and there. I was able to circumvent the the comedy club hierarchy because I was already famous as a stand up co- or as a uh, syndicated cartoonist
2: right,
0: but I have trouble because I show a lot of of, of uh, imagery you right. know, I, I don't just do stand up so I can't just people ask me come and do a ten minute set for. I don't, that's not, I can't just step in the middle of a show of 15 comics and do a (laughs) 10 minute set with a projector and all this kind of, you know, with the visuals and stuff. It's just, I'm not in that routine, you know.
1: Yeah, I was invited to a a storytelling night here in LA. Uh. and it was on stage And I, I went And I, I was going to tell that I don't Maybe you've heard me tell the story About being stung by the scorpion in oh, Guatemala yeah. Yeah, I do So I was going to tell that story And that's what they invited me Because they'd heard me tell right. it elsewhere And they're like, oh yeah, right. you should Okay, cool So I go to this thing It's in uh, Hollywood here And it's me and four comedians I was like, this isn't storytelling night. What are you yeah. talking about? This is, Andy Dick was on right before me, right? Uh, and uh, it's like, this this is bullshit. This is a story. Yeah. I'm not going to go up there and tell this story about how I almost, yeah, I thought I was dying in Guatemala after, you know, these, completely. So, so, you, I, so you bailed? No, I, I, I switched. Uh, I told the story about um, my first sexual experience with a cat. <laughs> and... Because I thought it was funny. Yeah,
0: just the way you said that leads me to believe that there were numerous sexual
1: experiences with a cat. <laughs> no, it was my first sexual experience, and it was with a cat. It happened to be a cat. <laughs> a, a female cat, don't get me wrong. Oh, uh, was, oh, right. I'm sorry. And, uh, and she was asking for it, believe me. Now, <laughs> now I've told that story. I, I think
2: don't, I've told don't, that.
1: Now, don't tell me that you had just mistook the term pussy (laughs) the p word (laughs) just misunderstood yeah no but around that same age i remember i was hanging out with kids a couple years older than me i I must have been i don't know seven or eight and they were 10 probably and they were talking about getting some rubbers right you know tough 10 year olds gonna get some rubbers you know yeah and (laughs) and i remember like sort of going along like yeah yeah we should get some rubbers and and uh One of the kids looked at me He's like You don't even know What a rubber is man What are you doing Trying to call my bluff He probably didn't know either But anyway I had a vague sense That it was about Stopping babies I knew that much Ah. And I figured It's made out of rubber Right So I said No it's a piece of rubber That a woman puts over her vagina So when the baby's born It bounces back in (laughs) <laughs> That's what she thought. I, I had it all worked out. <laughs> it's like, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it
0: prevents birth. Yeah. Right.
1: It's just bounce it back in there. Right, You'll sure. be fine. Yeah. Those were the days when we used to sneak into the bar and, and uh, eat the beer nuts because we thought we'd get drunk from the beer nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Dumbass kids in Pennsylvania. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I was even stupider than that. I, I, don't, um, I honestly did not know that homosexuality existed until I was in high school. I had never heard of it. Yeah. I, I'm probably older than you are. I'm 52. Yeah, I'm 56. So. And I was in You're in Oklahoma. better shape. I was in Oklahoma. And you have a fancy so.
1: mustache. Yeah. Well,
0: you could have a fancy mustache. So I, I, presume, I, I cannot know, I have
1: believe. a mustache without looking extremely gay. Yeah, I had a yeah. mustache for years. You remember? Did you ever see me? I'm referring to my cousin here. I forget that people listening can't see you, so. <laughs> cousin Dave. You, this is the second podcast in a row that you you've uh, come up in. Well, I was telling you, I interviewed your buddy who wrote the book, yeah. and uh, he told me the story about you puking in the bushes at his bar mitzvah because you had too much manischewitz. <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so you didn't know... You know, there are a lot of societies in the world that have no idea that homosexuality exists. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah.
0: But, like, when I was a... Well, you know, I mean, when I was in high school, it still wasn't allowed on TV. Oh. You know, it was... I think there were occasional references to it in dramas, but um, the... Um, I don't know if if you remember the sitcom Soap.
1: Oh, sure. Came
0: out. Um, um, very late 70s. First gay character 79. on TV. Yeah, yeah, Billy Crystal played a gay, and it was... And people were up in arms. you know, there were, there were religious groups that were protesting the show and boycotting the sponsors and stuff like that. It was the first I think it might have been the first time that that whole boycotting the sponsor shit ever started with television.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but that was about '79, 70, 80, something like that. And so um, yeah, when I was in high school, which was in the early '70s, it just it never came up around my house, and um, I don't think I ever heard any of my friends talking about it, and it wasn't on TV. Uh, I would not allowed. To, that, the, the rating system had just started, so I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies yet. Right.
1: Well, it was so, on TV, but nobody acknowledged what it was. Liberace. Well, yeah, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I mean, how, how is Liberace know. not that,
0: gay? You that know? to me has got to be the funniest <laughs> historical fact yeah. of, 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 of all of American history is that Liberace had a long, multi-million-dollar career without anyone ever knowing he was gay, and he was so gay. <laughs> so gay. He was more so gay than, than Harvey Firestein. I mean, you can't think of a more gay performer, even yeah. now that people are out of the closet. Yeah. Nobody's as gay as Liberace. Well, d-
1: doesn't that go back to what we were saying before, where the prohibition of talking about things yeah. allows all sorts yeah. of weirdness. Yeah. Actually, forces weirdness in yeah. a lot of ways, you know? Well, Gary, but, I mean, I think the same thing about, like, Leave it to Beaver. Like those guys, whoever wrote that. I, I mean, I, I got this theory that like late fifties, early sixties, there were all these TV writers who were cool and they were getting yeah. high and they, you know, knew yeah. and they slip shit right by the censors like Sami Stott, you know, like they'll never think Beaver Cleaver, they'll never, and if they do get it, they won't be able to say they get it, you know, yeah. or like Batman and Robin, oh, they're yeah. not a gay couple. No, Come B- on, yeah,
0: Batman and Robin are. Yeah, I was, I was about to bring that up. That's what, that's what I started thinking about when you were talking about that. Is that. Uh, yeah, there's so, many, there's so much uh, homoerotica in Batman and Robin yeah. co- comics, especially the old ones, like the very early ones. Yeah. I think, you know, <laughs> I was just thinking that, I mean, these are my colleagues. I've probably met, in fact, I, know, I do know, I, I, I know very well the, the guy that um, invented the Joker. He was one of the guys who worked for the guy that invented Batman. Jerry Robinson, he just died a couple years ago. Great guy. But uh, yeah, there's, there had to have been some disguised homosexual in the art house somewhere. Yeah.
1: Well, very interesting <laughs> how these things like get slipped into the culture, these subversive yeah, yeah. messages I feel as people will talk in. about it. Yeah, Right, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. My, mom, uh, my mom was kind of very... She was very much a product of that generation. Um, she's, she's very cool now. My parents are both very liberal. But they're also 80 years old, so they weren't always... I mean, they were always socially liberal, but it wasn't as big a task as it is now. Mm. (laughs) So when people in the 70s and 80s, when people first started talking about people being openly gay, she always thought of that as an insult. Like, that, she she just grew up... Like, you wouldn't call someone homosexual... Right. ...any more than you would call them a pedophile. That's a horrible thing. Right. And so... I remember the first time this happened was when I was in high school... um, uh, I had lo- much longer hair then, and she's, she went to this hairdresser named Michael. And she just loved him. She thought he was the funniest guy and so handsome, and why he, didn't, why he hadn't found a wife yet, she just couldn't understand. <laughs> so it, it just so happened that one time she said, well, you know, you should go to, you should go to Michael to cut your hair. Um, uh, I, you know, I needed a haircut or whatever. And she goes, he, 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 he does a great job. And I go, okay. So I went, and this guy was as gay as Liberace. And when I came home, I, I said, she goes, how did you like Michael? Isn't he a
2: funny guy? <laughs>
0: well, yeah, he's funny, Mom. He's very funny. He's, he's, he's gay. That's why he's so funny. You never told me that before. And she goes, he is not. <laughs> what do you mean? Michael you the don't, head don't even know him. I said, Mom, how old is he? 45. And who does he live with? A roommate, because it's cheaper, <laughs> and the roommate is a man. Mother, come on. Well, open your eyes, you yeah. know. And it became one of these kind of things. Um, but you're right. Back then, nobody talked about any of that stuff. So you couldn't, you know, people could get, plus, you know, it was like super easy to get away with pedophilia back then because nobody was talking about it. It was, it was easy to get away with wife, wife beating because nobody would talk about it. Right. And, and now here we are trying to, you know, make sure that nobody ever talks about
1: racism or. Now it's really yeah. difficult to get away with beating your wife. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's terrible. <laughs>
0: You say that you say that as though it disappoints you somehow, Chris.
1: Well, I mean, what gets me is people referring to those shirts as wife beaters. Oh, yeah, that's a weird thing.
0: You know what that is? That's an Italian thing. That's uh, the 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 sort of uh, the Italian Sicilian immigrants used to wear those T-shirts around New York City out on the stoops, and they were the kind of guys. And I'm, I'm Sicilian, so I can say that uh-huh. that actually there is a certain amount of. Uh, um. True, and uh, probably a lot of the Latin cultures have a little. I don't know. Maybe maybe they just of, have a reputation for it. Maybe every yeah. culture had, a, had well, actually I, was beating their wives. Thinking, I, I had
1: a North African girlfriend for a while in Spain, and I remember her saying to me, uh, "In her culture, there were. I think she was Moroccan or Tunisian, or something." And she said that uh, there was a saying in her culture that um, the man should always should beat his wife at least once a week. And if he doesn't know why, don't worry, she does. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's, it goes on all
0: over the world, so it's, it's really just an unfair stereotype. But I think it's where wife Peter came from, is because Italians uh, used to wear those kind of T-shirts out on the stoops <laughs> in New York City. Yeah. And uh, I will occasionally, when, when olive oil gets out of line, I just tell her, remember, I am Sicilian. I've never, I've never hit a woman yet, but I am Sicilian. It's in my blood. It's <laughs> bound so to happen. Don't push me. Olive oil i yeah I publicly call my girlfriend olive oil because she 's so tall and skinny um and uh and i'm and i 'm so short and strong of, uh, and my spinach. and my Your forearms, forearms are, are the size of hams those, those big uh, anchor tattoos yeah. yeah um no i i- call, i've called her that on my blog for some time now we i guess we've been together a little over a year and i i, I just uh, rather than because you know, I don't want to. I don't. I don't like to. I don't want to use her real name and just sort of open her up to people finding her on Facebook and hassling her or whatever, just because they're weird fans of mine who found her through my blog or something. So anyway, I ended up naming her Olive, Oil, calling her Olive Oil in there. And yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of her public name.
1: Well, that's good.
0: In private, I call her real name is just Chuck. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's a good name. Very feminine. Uh, old souls. What what did you want to say about old souls?
0: Well, you know, I, this last year, because of olive oil, actually this is a great segue. This last year, I have had a major paradigm shift in my, just in my mentality. Um, And I'll try to give you the super quick version of it, but uh, I was raised Catholic, uh, kind of an old, old Italian, old world Italian Catholic. Went to Catholic school, Catholic church, uh, on and on and on. And as a, Teenager in high school, um, I made friends with this guy who I thought was really cool. And he was. He was a cool guy. He was, he was another artist. Met him in art class. He uh, had cool hair and liked the same bands I did and stuff. But his dad was an evangelical preacher. And I had been raised to, to take religion really seriously. In fact, my dad wanted to be a priest. When he left high school, he was going to go to seminary and be a priest. And my grandfather wouldn't let him. Mm because he was his only son. And it's like, I'll be damned if you're going to leave me without an heir. Uh-huh. You're going to college and you're going to become an engineer. Cause my, my grandfather was a bricklayer, a poor Sicilian immigrant bricklayer. Wow. And
1: he, he immigrated to Oklahoma.
0: No, no, no. Actually this was, that was in Kansas city. They were raised in Kansas city. Uh-huh. Uh, and my, my grandfather actually was born in Kansas city, but his parents had only just arrived. So he was yeah. raised like an immigrant, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, and so he's, you know, he's a poor bricklayer and a super bright guy. My father is super intelligent and my grandfather was super intelligent, but he was stuck being a bricklayer all his life. And, but then he would see the architects and the engineers and like, those are the guys that are in charge. Those are the guys with money. So by God, my son's going to grow up and be, somehow he got in his head, you're going to be an engineer. They're the ones that pull the strings. They're the ones that control everything. So he's, my dad goes off to college and thank goodness he did. He didn't become a priest because if he had, I probably, you know, I wouldn't have been born or I would have been born in my father would have been a my mother would have been a 13 year old boy who knows but (laughs) um so so thanks grandpa there's an idea for a comic (laughs) yeah (laughs) so um catch that one so uh uh thanks grandpa for that and um i so i was raised to take religion very seriously you know um and 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 spirituality but it wasn't making sense to me by by the time i was 15 16 years old Old World Catholic Christianity just wasn 't really making sense to me anymore, and this guy was an evangelical, and he invited me to some youth group you know that 's how the way they get you. They first no, 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 they invite no. you to the party, right. then they start dragging you into church uh, they 're like pushers, those evangelicals, but um, he became my best friend and, and and I went to this, so I went to the and I really dug this church and they were very into the defining the Bible literally and um, uh, interpreting it literally and the 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 rapture was coming any day now and the end of the world. So there was like special effects. You know, they were faith healing and speaking in tongues, all that stuff. And I thought, oh, well now, you know, if if what I was raised to believe is true, that there's this magical invisible person in the sky who uh, has all these powers on our lives, if only we have the faith and stuff, then, you know, maybe these guys are onto something. They're, 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 they're damn sure not uh, creating miracles over at the Catholic Church. So I'm going to try this for a while. So I did that for a while. Eventually that, bored me um, after a few years of that I, I began to kind of see through it uh, and uh, so then through my adult life I I just kept st- I wanted to know what the, what's the truth about spirituality what really is there anything there is there nothing there is there you know it's, it's, I wanted to know so I read a lot of books I uh, read I read some college textbooks on various rel- world religions secular and, and um, philosophical books theological books. So I became agnostic, as people do when they go down that path quite often. Um, and then I started reading Dawkins and, and Hitchens and those kind of things. And then I just became a complete atheist and a rationalist. And if, it, if, it, if you can't see it, touch it, measure it, experience it in some scientific way, it doesn't exist. And I just gave up on the whole thing. Then I met Olive Oil uh, a little over a year ago. And she has a completely different way of worldview, completely different worldview. She has a belief, she's not religious, uh, but she has a belief in spirituality and that there is a spiritual realm and old souls and young souls and uh, reincarnation and, 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 you know, she doesn't describe to any particular human mythological construct around those things, but she she has a strong sense that they're there. And I began to, again, to become intrigued by the whole subject. And then she gave me a book called DNA and the Cosmic Serpent. You know this book? Jeremy Narby? Yeah, that's it, Narby. (sighs) And, and I kind of realized that what was really happening is like, uh, so I read this book and he's a Stanford educated PhD in, in anthropology and he spent a lot of time in South America studying various primitive tribes and came across the uh, ayahuasca and these other uh, healing medicinal plants that they have down there and eventually gave in to using the plant and actually going on the trips. And then he's like, it changed his perspective on everything. And then I, and then I, at the same time I started listening to podcasts by um, uh, physicists who were talking about the, not only the possibility, but the likelihood of alternative parallel universes and alternative dimensions and all these things that we can't see. And then the, just the simple fact that there are like, I don't know how many dozens of various light spectrums and we can only see eight. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of stuff that you can't see. And it all started to kind of come at me at, at once. And, At the right time. And I started thinking, you know, the whole old soul, young soul model, whether people, whether souls really do exist or live beyond any given human being, um, that really does make a lot of sense. Because I remember as a kid, I felt like I cared about, I understood and cared about more important, larger things than my friends did.
1: Right.
0: I always felt like I was wiser, was kind of the way I... Thought of myself even as a kid, and and throughout life, you you meet certain people that just don't get it, and you know they never will. And then you come across other people who so totally get it, way so much more than you do, and you're like, wow, I want to know what you know. Right. You know, there's it just, and it's not just a matter of education, right? Um, it's something else. You know, there are these, and and, and so I'm, I'm beginning once again to embrace. The the aspects of the universe that cannot be measured, I'm now beginning again to believe that there is a lot going on in this universe, and probably even in our in this very room that we'll never understand or really be able yeah. to comprehend. Uh, so anyway, it's just been intellectually really stimulating and spiritually stimulating to some degree. Even even though I. But I, I, I really, I owe it all to her because she, she you know, and then she's like, oh, if you like that book, read this book. Oh, if you like that book, read this book. And that was, in fact, how I came to your book. And that was what was so exciting. Uh, I'll very briefly tell that story is that, um, so she gives me this book, Sex at Dawn, and and um, and it's for readers who don't know. Well, who wouldn't know that, readers, listeners? For <laughs> listeners who don't know, that's a book by... You wouldn't be listening to this. Well, actually, I don't know. I might pull in a, a. I might pull in a couple dozen listeners who don't know who you are. So Christopher Ryan, yeah. the guy I'm talking to right now, is one of my favorite authors in the world. Oh, at the off. moment, it's passing. I'm reading another book that's very good by someone uh, else. So you oh, may I'm lose Being here. supplanted already. Look at that. <laughs> Anyway, uh, he's written a book, uh, which I've talked about on my blog quite a bit, called Sex at Dawn, which is a study of the sociological, anthropological, scientific, zoological uh, evidence that that sort of tells the story of what kind of mating habits prehistoric humans had. And, And that's what interests me, is that when was marriage and monogamy invented? Or have we always been, well, obviously, anybody who understands animals at all, knows that humans are not naturally monogamous. If we were, we'd all look alike and we wouldn't care who we were with. We'd just pick somebody and that would be that for the rest of your life. You'd never be tempted to stray. So anyway, it's a a fascinating book. So Olive Oil Oil and I read this book and we'd been talking about it together and just like really getting all so excited and fascinated and sort of taking off on these other shoots and and, and, uh, tangents. And then all of a sudden one day... The, the the my my phone buzzes and it's a tweet it was a message of some kind. I
1: think it was tw- Twitter. Yeah, I and it was and it Twitter. was Chris.
0: It was Christopher Ryan saying, um, "Hey, I saw this cartooners and I thought it might be a good fit for my new book. How can I contact you?" And and we're actually sitting there talking. and I'm like, "Oh my god." Christopher Ryan just texted me. What the fuck? There and is I read a god. it. Yeah, <laughs> and then I and then I, I tweeted back something incredibly stupid and lame, a joke that you probably get constantly. And I apologize. You remember what it was? No. Good. I won't remind you.
1: Oh come on.
0: It was totally something stupid. About
1: monkey balls.
0: Well, no. It was I I, I just I tweeted back. Uh, oh my god, that's great. We're huge. My girlfriend and I are huge fans of yours, but we're monogamous by choice, so no swapping. <laughs> like, that is so fucking stupid but Don't to, get
1: any ideas
0: In my defense, I was about two stiff margaritas into <laughs> patio cocktail hour that night when, uh-huh. the, when the tweet came in So that's why it's such a lame response But anyway, uh-huh. so that's how I ended up on this podcast So it's actually been a little intimidating Because you're the first person to ever interviewed me Whom I already admired before I spoke to them
3: Most, uh-huh. people, that,
0: most people that interview me are just journalists And right. I don't know who they are I don't know them from Adam, you know So, um, anyway. Well, my wife really wrote the book. I just
1: sort of went along for the ride.
0: I figured, especially after having met you today, I'm thinking, this guy doesn't. No
1: way. There's no way this guy knows that many words. He can can hardly talk, much less write. Um, Talking about the old souls thing, there's, um, I don't know if you or Olive Oil have uh, ever heard of Ian Stevenson. Ian Stevenson was a psychiatrist. He just died recently. He was a psychiatrist, taught at University of Virginia Medical School. Um, But his sort of hobby was the study of reincarnation. And he pursued the study extremely scientifically. And what he did was he had these teams of informants and graduate students, um, particularly in India, Lebanon, Brazil, and the American South. And they would report to him uh, cases of apparent uh, reincarnation young kids who were recounting their previous Ah, lives. yeah, And then they would go and interview the kid and get as much detail as they possibly could about the previous life. Like where, what was the town like? Did you have brothers and sisters? Um, How did you die? How old were you? All this kind of stuff. This is like three, four-year-old kids, right? And then they'd try to find the person who died. And they found... 15 or 20 cases at least of uh, matching facts matching. Yeah. Wow. Where the kid would say, well, I was riding my bike home from the brick factory and a truck ran over me by the river and, the, you know, and they'd find the village with a river and a brick factory and someone who died, you know, a truck rolled over. Them. And the kids often had uh, birthmarks at the site of the trauma. Cause generally these are people who died violently. Wow. Either murder or accident or something.
0: Now, here's here's the question. Am I interrupting?
1: No, well, if people are interested in this, yeah, the problem is Ian Stevenson was so uh, concerned as a scientist, concerned about you know being ridiculed, right. that he wrote his his reports in this extremely dry scientific language uh. with tables and statistical analysis and all that. Uh. But a guy, a journalist, went to write an article about him, and was so fascinated by this stuff that he decided to write a book, and the book's called Old Souls. So if anyone wants to read about it, that's an easy read. The Stevenson's work itself is difficult.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that, that was going to be my question, is that the first thing that all my, because I'm fairly well known as a rational atheist. I've come out in my, on my blog and in my cartoons. That's another thing I've enjoyed doing over the years that was not financially very wise, was to um, do cartoons about atheism and in mm. God and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm kind of well known for that, uh, among people who know who the hell I am in the first place, but, um,
1: (laughs) Dave raises his hand. (laughs) My cousin is a, is a fan, a huge fan. (laughs) Thanks Dave. (laughs) Anyway, um, uh,
0: yeah, the first thing they're going to say is like, uh, well, you know, how legitimate are the stories? Is this, did the stories get trumped up? Did it, so you're saying that the science and the documentation behind it is, Solid enough to solid, yeah. to to convince because see this is what I've begin to realize about myself is that the right brain's creative the left brain's analytical most people have a, a really strong you know they favor one side or the other and uh, I tend to battle between the two all the time my right brain really does sense and understand and want to embrace things like souls and energy and you know all this kind of uh, hippy dippy california shit that i that i've made fun of all my life but then the left brain won't fucking let me do it but and this is one thing that started to crack the shell a bit was when i read the the dna and the cosmic Ser- serpent by Dar narby he's a stanford phd in anthropology so i was like ah oh, so this guy he comes from where i came from he's an intellect he's like he's thinking how can i make intellectual sense of these primitive this that and the other thing and he gets so then i read another book another book so now as i find these people who have phds or or have a certain amount of uh, scientific credibility and they start to see the uh start to wonder about the possibilities of what uh, psychedelic drugs and different things might actually be doing to people and then it gives me—it's like suddenly I've found permission. That's what that, it, my left brain gives my right brain permission to embrace it, yeah. or at least investigate it. You know.
1: Well, to me, you—you you nailed it earlier when you were talking about how we only see a very, perceive a very small part of the visual spectrum, right? Right. Um, and there's so many things going on around us at all times that we're not able to perceive. Uh, either right. because our attention's focused on other things or, you know, it, it always cracks me up when people, uh, you know, research dog behavior or something and they assume dogs are visual when, in fact, dogs are are perceiving the world mostly through scent, yeah. right? But because the scientists have no idea how to measure it or even think about it, they ignore it. Mm-hmm. It's like the guy yeah. looking for his keys under the light even though he dropped them in <laughs> the dark, right? Because yeah. this is where the light is. Yeah. So we do that so often. And you said... You know, if it's not measurable and the mechanism isn't clear, yeah. whatever, I don't want to listen. I don't, you know, it doesn't exist. But there's a great example I was just reading the other day about this um, doctor who found, I think this was in the early 1800s, and he, he, he noticed that surgeons who came from surgery and delivered babies um, without washing their hands, there was a very high chance that the baby and or the mother would die from infection. Yeah. Now, there was no germ theory. So exactly. there was no way to explain how this happened. But he noticed and he got a bunch of people to wash their hands every time before they delivered babies and the infection rate plummeted. So it was demonstrated, but there was no mechanism. Yeah. And he could not convince hospitals to adopt this practice yeah. because the arrogant motherfuckers refused to accept it because there was no mechanism. And you couldn't see it. You couldn't see it. You couldn't measure it. You couldn't prove
2: yeah. it.
1: Yeah. Right? Although you could see it in a way, right? It's like yeah, you, can you can see, see the, the wind in the, in the bending of the trees, yeah, right. but you don't see the wind itself, Right. right? And to me, the problem with the, the sort of hardcore atheist perspective, the Richard Dawkins perspective, right. is the incredible arrogance of thinking that nothing exists except w- what we can see and measure. Right. That our puny little primate brains are the be-all and end-all. And to me, that's just as arrogant and silly as the religious fundamentalist who says, God talks to me and nobody else. Bullshit, man. Nobody knows what's going on, right? And there's yeah, so much yeah. mystery. I mean, I personally have experienced things that are way beyond explanation. Or yeah. you know, So from a personal perspective, I have no doubt that there are other dimensions. I don't think of it as a, you know, a god or a, you know, a guy with a beard or something. But yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's so much going on that, that is beyond our comprehension. And yeah, hallucinogens are a great way to get a taste of that. Uh, I think, because yeah. in my experience, hallucinogens are kind of like, uh, you know, they, they take off the filter. Right. And so normally we're sort of perceiving maybe 5% of what's going on around us and, right. you know, good stiff dose of acid or something and suddenly you're perceiving 30% and it's like holy shit yeah. and it's all there it's real you know you're just it's all about the way you perceive it
0: yeah i'm definitely going to look more into that stuff in the very near future i'm fascinated by it um i've had a few experiences with mushrooms psilocybin and um they weren't by any means they weren't by any means strong enough to be considered anything like a spiritual experience or anything like that but just the visual experience alone was enough to bring me back cuz i just found it absolutely fascinating in a dumb you know, dumbfounding in way. nature in nature yeah yeah, yeah that's, that's yeah. the way to be yeah yeah sun yeah bright sunny park in the fall with lots of colors in the trees and oh, nice. both times i did it um was like that and uh yeah it's it's it, it, it's interesting because when when you when you're in a situation like that when you're you know you you, you look at a leaf and you and you start staring at it and you, you just feel like you're falling into it. Like you can just see so much more about what's going on in there. And it always occurs to me, gosh, why can't I see this all the time? You yeah. know, Why don't leaves always look this way to me? Um, and I always think when I'm, when I'm under that influence, I'm thinking, yeah, they're going to now, man. I'm going to remember this. I'm not ever going to forget this. This is the way I'm always going to look at leaves. And then, of course, the next day you're like, that no, was a brown leaf. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's not there anymore. It's just, it's just. Uh, I also feel that way when I go to the dentist and get laughing gas. Oh, like I, I, I love. Feel so, oh, guns. I know it. If that stuff was sold at 7-Eleven, I would never leave the house except to buy more. <laughs> 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 well, you, you can get whippets. Yeah. Well, I that's the thing. I don't. I don't want to allow myself. I kind of. Yeah I, don't to, yeah. I really. Don't. Don't tell me where I can get that. Honestly, because I like it too much. But yeah. it feels so good to lay there and just think. Oh man. Why why have I been worrying about
1: anything? Yeah. Nothing fucking matters. Well, why? I mean, it's it's just American pathology that every dentist isn't using laughing gas cuz there's if it's used correctly, there's no toxicity. It doesn't kill brain cells. It's not bad for you. There's no And you don't lose consciousness. You don't lose consciousness. All you do is lose the fear of being at the dentist. I mean, I can remember like being disappointed, like "What, Mm -hmm. you're done already? Oh, come on." Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I know. Yeah, I've I've had yeah
0: I've I've had in my adult life I've had serious processes with and without laughing gas, and there's no fucking comparison, man. Yeah, and it's and the Novocaine is no different. It's just the gas is different, and the the, you you get that gas. it It just doesn't hurt nearly as much. Yeah.
1: And and I mean that's a very interesting situation because what's changing there, right? It's not your your neur- neurons aren't changing. What's right. changing is your framing of the experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Which is this intangible thing that completely Yeah. I mean, another example is placebo. Right. I
0: was about to say it's very similar to placebo yeah. effect, which is which is profound. I profound
1: mean, and very real, but unmeasurable and undemonstrable. It blows
0: my mind. I know. I was talking about um like just on, on my uh on my blog the other day, I mentioned something about um, preferring natural remedies over um, pharmaceuticals, and how much right. I, I just w- was railing a bit like a big baby. I was ranting on the pharmaceutical industry and how much I hate them anyway so of course, I attracted some doctor types or some some internet trolls who know something about pharmaceuticals, and they were criticizing me for how you know this the, these natural remedies uh, are proven not to work, even if they are they're not they're not even if it does work, even if the pharmaceutical is made from a certain amount of natural remedies, the natural remedies are not under the FCC, and so they're not in the same amounts. And my attitude was, look, even if it's a placebo effect, if it works, what do I care? It works. I'm looking for pain relief, not pain relief that I can defend in a 30-page paper. Right. (laughs) Well, no one knew
1: how aspirin worked until the 1970s. That doesn't surprise me. I still don't know how it works. How stupid am I? <laughs> <laughs> but it works,
0: right? I mean, yeah, exactly. you're not going
1: to not take well, exactly,
0: it. and it, just the fact that it came from a doctor. I mean, yeah, one of my biggest complaints is that they, you know, they get you. See, like I'm, I'm hooked on antidepressants, and I don't mean that in a, I mean that in a literal way. I, I went, th- I have um, a fair amount of chemical depression in my family. My family are, I'm telling you, almost to a man or a person. We are sweet people trapped in the body of irritable assholes. <laughs> and Isn't that every family? That's how we all want to be. That's who we are. And we struggled with it for years. A number of us went through all this therapy and all these kind of, you know, I mean, nothing, nothing crazier than therapy. Uh, some of the crazier stuff probably would have worked better. But, you know, and we're like solving our problems right and left, but we're still irritable assholes who just have the feeling that the world is about to collapse around us. Yeah. And everything is in our way, and so then I went through this uh, devastating divorce. Uh, with the, uh, I, I was married when I was very young, had two kids, and then uh, we got divorced sixteen years later. I was in my late thirties, and it was a devastating because my kids were still young, and uh, I, I didn't see it coming, didn't want to see it coming. It was, there was, it was just a very painful. Hmm. Uh, it was a surprise and very painful to me. And I was so down that I was damn near suicidal. And the, my therapist finally said, "You know what? You might ought to try antidepressants." And so I'm like, "No, I don't want a chemical solution to my problem." You know. And he finally said, "Look, just just do it. Just talk to a psychiatrist." And so I tried it, and the cloud lifted for the first time in twenty years. Really? And I felt, and I just so I kept I, I kept doing it, you know. It and eventually, I, was that Zoloft? The original one was Zoloft, yeah. yeah. And originally, and then I tried to get off of them a few years later when I was feeling better and had my life together and was actually happy that I had gotten a divorce and that I was building a better life for myself. And I thought, oh, well, now I can get off. I was trying to get off, and man, within a month or two, the cloud descended, and I couldn't get out. And I struggled through that for six or eight months and started back on the antidepressants. And then about 10 years later, I decided to try again. Same thing happened. So I'm furious with the fact that... um, well, I'm not furious. I mean, they did me a favor; they saved a lot of years of my life. But I would just love to get off of them. I don't like being beholden to the pharmaceuticals because you know you're out of town for a four day, five day weekend. You forgot your drugs. You got to go ask somebody for permission to go buy four pills to hold you over to for a drug that is n- neither dangerous nor recreational. Right. Just that whole system drives me nuts. Yeah. So I got to go pay this guy hundred bucks to give me permission to go pay this guy. <laughs> <laughs> to give me these fucking pills, yeah, just because I forgot them at home and you know, that kind of stuff drives me nuts.
1: So, did um, you then, did you drop them cold turkey or did you phase them out?
0: I, I, I tried to phase them out the two times I did it, but anyway, I currently olive oil got. Uh, uh, in fact, I think we may have even gotten it from your podcast. Yeah, was it. We got it from reset.com. oh reset amber lions right? Yeah, she was talking about the mood cure. The book called the mood cure, which was uh, which is all about. Um, Food and, and uh, vitamins and minerals and all of it, various things. The best ways to get off of antidepressants yeah, for really. good and build up the, the serotonin in your system more naturally and these kind of things. So we're trying that now. We're in the process of weaning very slowly and adding supplements and all this stuff. Anyway, so I had these guys that that's, that was the point of it that these guys were just like, well, if it if it if it can't actually be proven in a the laboratory, then I guess you do. I, I used to be one of those guys. It's like, if you can't prove it in a the laboratory, then don't show it to me. I'm not going to... Yeah. Uh, crystals, come on. I'm going to rub a crystal on my forehead because I have sinus problems. Don't be an idiot, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and now I'm more like, nah, I don't really believe crystals are going to solve my sinus problems, but shit, give it a try. Yeah. What do I care? If it goes away, it goes away.
1: Well, if you can get them all the way up into your sinus. <laughs> oh, uh, that's it. That's how you oh. have to do it, yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, they're suppositories. <laughs>
1: exactly,
0: <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. I had a neighbor once who um, had a horrible um, issue... And um, she came over and knocked on the door late at night many many years ago. I was like, I've got this. I think I need to go to the hospital. I've got diarrhea, and I just it won't and, my, and my wife at the time was this was back when my kids were little. She goes, Oh well, we've got some suppositories that we use for the kids. It'll probably help, you know. And so she gives them to her. And the next day she asks her, How, how did it go? And she goes, I guess it worked, but man, it take those things take forever. They're so chewy. It was so hard to. She didn't know what the word suppository even meant. She ended up swallowing them. It's just an off, just a little story that, oh. yeah.
3: <laughs> it's just because that's that,
0: rough. The crystal story gave me that. <laughs> I, yeah, it reminded me of that story. That is
1: rough. Whatever. When you look back at your work from the the dark years, does it bring it back? Is it like, you know, like sometimes when I, I look at writing I did at a certain point in my life, yeah. it really brings it back to me somehow. But I mean, you 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 you, uh, you begin to. Remember what it felt like back then. I remember or, what yeah. it felt like to be the guy who wrote that.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's that, that can happen. Yeah, that's true. Definitely the um, when I look at the when I look at the cartoons that I wrote right after, like during my first that that first marital split up back in the nineties. Um, yeah, I, I it, it it does ring bells. It has a certain kind of memory cue to me, and I, and, and the cartoons themselves are not necessarily darker. But, they're, but they, they just have a feel to me that um, – it's like I was, I, I was not – I was looking for a joke that I could turn in mm. <laughs> and, be, and be on deadline. I wasn't right. really looking for the joy in life that, <laughs> that the joke might be bringing me or whatever, you know. Right. I wasn't really looking for some way to make – because typically when I write a cartoon, I don't think about what's going to make other people laugh. I think what makes me laugh.
1: Do you have like a buffer? Do you have like a dozen jokes that are in the can? <laughs> No? You're, you're running day to <laughs> no. day?
0: Well, I send them in a week at a time. So uh, I, I typically, you know, I'll spend a few days creating cartoons, a week's worth of the cartoons, and then send them in, and then I do the same thing a few days later. So, uh, But no, I'm always right on deadline. I don't really have a backlog
1: of jokes at all. Mm. Um, I saw uh, this movie, The Making of South Park, recently, and apparently that's how they do South Park. Every week they really? come up with, they start with the idea, they take Monday off. And then Tuesday morning, they're in there trying to think of what they're going to do that week. And by whatever it is, Saturday, whatever, they've got to have a finished show. I think it's a good, I think a lot of
0: TV shows are done that way, but I think it's a good way to do it. It's not a, it's not a comfortable way to do that kind of thing, but it keeps it fresh and real. uh, The, like, I'm one of those kind of people that works better under pressure. Yeah. And if I know I have to write a certain amount of gags, I'll just sit down and do it. You know, and, and, and like, I'll just, there's this place in my mind and I actually learned to go to this place in my mind, um, from Catholic school when I was, uh, in the f- first through sixth grade, I went to Catholic school and we had to, uh, go to a, a full length Latin mass every day before school, Monday through Friday. Then I got Saturday off and I had to go back to church on Sunday with my parents. So I was going to Latin mass six days a week for years as a kid. In a foreign language, I mean, yeah. come on anyway um, and when i when I sat there i would I used to just like it, fortunately, they had elaborate stained glass windows, so it gave me something to do, and I would just stare at those things and let my mind wander mm. and I, I i I honestly think I started learning to fall into a zone at that age and uh, at that time because now that 's exactly what I do. I can just stare off into space and fall into a zone and pay attention to the things i 'm thinking. And then every now and then I come back and go, oh, I'm staring at a light switch. It's like I don't even, it's, it's so weird how you can, with your eyes wide open, you can stare right at something. And I'm sure everybody has this happen to them from time to time. And, but you're in so deep in thought that you don't even see what you're staring at. It's like your mind doesn't even notice what you're looking at. It's all about what's happening inside your head. And, but that's where I go when I write gags. Um, and now I don't worry about it too much. If I have to write gags, I just sit down and go to that place and, you know, something pops up.
1: Stuff comes to you. Yeah. Just pops. Wow, that's...
0: But it's like anything else. If you practice it, you know, I've been doing it every day for 30 years, so it's virtually every day. Now, the downside is, of course, I get no no time off for bad stuff, but no time off, I mean, no time off for, uh, you know, personal tragedy, but also no time off for holidays at the... Double the process and work ahead for several weeks to get a week right. off, and you know, that's always do a
1: pain. people suggest ideas to you. Do you get fans saying, Oh, sending, oh you should do a thing about this?
0: Yeah, 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 all the time.
1: Yeah. Is that helpful or irritating?
0: Um, no, it's it's
1: never been, it's never
0: irritating. It's, it's a little bit irritating when they do it in person, um, only because then I feel like my, my response, <laughs> yeah, they're looking is for your important approval. to them, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> because the vast majority of jokes that people send me are not particularly good, but every now and then, well, actually. Because I get so many, I, I, there's, you know, I use ideas from readers probably two or three times a month. Oh, just because cool. at this point in my career, I've got enough people writing to me all the time. But yeah, nine nine out of ten of them are are just, I guess, you've either heard it before, right. or it's just like, oh, it's so predictable, uh, or it's just some incredibly lame pun. Because that's where most people go for humor is just puns. Yeah. And I used to be up. Which uppity. is now
1: illegal in China. Did you see that punning is? Yeah, illegal? the Chinese government has outlawed punning. Why? Because it, it leads to ridicule of the government. I guess. Yeah, like two weeks ago, they, they passed a law <laughs> that wordplay is no longer legal. Wordplay is no longer allowed.
0: <laughs> wow,
1: I didn't know they even had words. I mean, how do you pun in Chinese characters? You know, I don't well,
0: know. yeah, uh, yeah, that is, uh, that, yeah, that all by itself is a good. I guess you just do it with sound instead of chow, it's chow, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which means two totally different things funny. in Chinese. Yeah, yeah tonal <laughs> languages
1: are a mess. I tried to learn Thai uh, once for like three hours, and what I learned in those three hours that put me off it for the rest of my life was exactly that, that there's the Thai, low, and up, stuff. and down. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like, we chang, we chang, we chang. And we chang, yeah. And those are four completely different words. Yeah. Which the only insight I got from that is maybe that's why we say that certain Asian people have no emotions, because if they get excited, it changes the meaning of what they're trying to say. <laughs> you know what I mean? If they get pissed off, it gets all like, oh, that no, I didn't mean it. They have to control account.
0: their voice, otherwise, they'd be telling a whole different story. Exactly.
2: Exactly.
1: <laughs> There's an idea for you. Uh-huh. So what the hell were we talking about there? I got all lost in the in the Chinese. There, there was something you were saying that, that I wanted to follow up on, but oh, oh is it true that um, that there's a really thriving comic uh, culture in Spain? Well, you know yeah, all
0: all of Europe has a has a pretty thriving comic culture. I've seen yeah, I've seen a lot of comics from erotic comics. Oh, that's right! Yeah, a big thing in. School, I have yeah. I haven't seen a lot of them, but I have seen a few um, comic books that are that are like very adult. They're like completely erotic, right? Yeah, that's
1: also big in Japan.
0: The the erotic. Yeah, I always assumed that was because the photography stuff was illegal. That the, you go to the comics. Uh, is I mean, in, in Japanese law, is it legal to show genitalia in drawings?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess it is in drawings. Yeah. Um, and they're really violent, you know. They're like you know schoolgirls being raped by octopus and stuff like that. Yeah, all... I know. Yeah, the whole octopus rape thing is a motif
0: apparently yeah. in in Asian porn.
1: Right. Well, and also the the art. I forget what it's called, but there's you know like 13th century Japanese yeah. erotic yeah. art. Really strange and beautiful. Yeah, it? it is
0: strange and beautiful. But yeah. it's but again, it's a, it's erotic, but it's a, but it's it, but it features octopus, yeah. raping female humans.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or, well, or, or, or making love to maybe they're making love to it female be, humans. We don't be. know they're rape. We've got Lita and the Swan, right? I mean, we've got yeah. the, the strange and you know you, me and the cat. You, I was about to say you and the cat, <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't rape. I told you <laughs> it was consensual. <laughs> I told that story. Where did I've told that story on the podcast somewhere? I won't tell it again, but it was uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh anyway, what uh Spain, Japan, where where was I? David, tell me. I'm out now. David's out. I'm down the rabbit hole. <laughs> well, listen, is there anything else we should uh we should cover here?
0: Um Oh I was accidentally on a TV show recently. Oh, what's that? Um i it was a strange thing, but I'll tell it very quickly. Um I actually when I first moved to LA 3 years ago I tried to get into animation. You know, I wanted to get an animated uh, strip going or an animated show going with my with my cartoon. And it, uh, it it didn't work out. They I I actually got a lot of very very close a lot of nibbles, a lot of close uh, calls, but uh, in the end they uh, they're kind of looking for that other kind of badly drawn, highly irreverent, almost juvenile kind of stuff that you get on adult cartoons these days. And that was not at all my style of art or humor and it just so I kind of you know, wasn't hip enough for them, I think. But, um, so I got, out of the, I got out of trying. And then I was at uh, Comic-Con a couple years ago in San Diego speaking. Uh, and a um, guy in the audience uh, came up and introduced himself afterward. and He's a, a very uh, successful reality TV show producer. And he wondered if I would consider doing a reality TV show about my life. So I immediately said no because I, A, hate reality TV. I never watch it. And B, I would not want people with cameras in my house all the time, or whatever it is that they do. So then he explained to me, "No, no, 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 no. We're going to do it completely differently. This would be like you would go out and meet strange people around the country and interview them and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and uh, we do all the work, and all you do is just show up, and be yourself, and then you get to go home. And we don't follow you with cameras." And I thought, "Oh, well, that sounds like fun." So we tried it, and uh, uh, a cable network bought the bought the the premise and paid for a pilot, and we did that. And the pilot, uh, then we brought it back to them. They go, oh, yeah, we love it. It's just what we asked for. But the president uh, just last week decided we're not going to do any more shows like this. So right in the toilet. (laughs) So then a year later, which was last year, my friend calls me up again. And he goes, hey, I'm working on this new show for Fox TV called Utopia, which was a huge project. Got tons and tons of publicity. Multi, multi million, like something like $50 million project. He goes, and they just, they, they want a narrator. Somebody who has a good, a, a good voice, but somebody interesting and different who isn't one of the typical Hollywood narrators. You know, mm. They don't want Morgan Freeman or anybody that sounds like a, an announcer. And I thought your voice and attitude might be good for it. Do you want to audition? I go, yeah. He goes, well, there's over 100 people auditioning, so you know, don't get you all upset. But, and I'm not involved in the choosing process. I'm just saying I could get you an audition. Well, lo and behold, I ended up getting the fucking gig. They gave me the job, and, and so I was narrating this show uh, on on Fox on network television and I wasn't even trying anymore to get into show business and certainly not as a performer well a week before the show premieres they decide you know the show needs warming up a bit what if we put the narrator on camera and I used him as a host and my uh, my buddy John who's the only one at that time who had seen me he's like have you seen this guy <laughs> he doesn't look like a f- host for a Fox TV show <laughs> and I go well how bad can it be <laughs> you know, so Anyway, uh they made me do a screen test and then they and they didn't like the way I looked. Uh so they had a couple other people do screen tests and stuff, but the the, the head honcho guy, the 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 big deal guy who invented the show from he's like this billionaire TV producer from Denmark, Holland, Netherlands somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um he loved me. This guy loved me. He just thought I was just quirky as hell and he really, you know, cuz I have this uh, Salvador Dali mustache and a pointy beard and I wear a hat and a, and funny clothes often, and um, he totally dug it. So, boom, they put me on camera. So there I was. I was on, the on-camera host of a network television show for a couple of months just this past wow, fall.
1: Wow, really? Yeah,
0: it was the strangest thing. It was totally by accident. And um, and that led to, like, you know, sort of more interesting things here and there. And then, I, and then the show got canceled because uh, nobody was watching it. Not enough people were watching it. Um, but it was a good thing because now I'm working on – some other, it got me seen. Right. It got me an agent. Right. It got another producer interested in me. And so now I'm working on a couple of different shows. That I hope to have, and once again, they're going to be reality shows, which I used to really openly criticize. Yeah. But these are not the kind of reality shows that I criticize. They're not <laughs> contests. These are the kind that pay me money. <laughs> these are the kind that I'm involved in. Exactly. Which is different Completely than the kind different. I criticize. <laughs> no, but seriously, I want to, and what I really want to make it do, I want to. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated by true eccentricity. I want to be able to. This is part of what the, the show is going to be about. Is that I'll, I'll be going around the country and interviewing people. Who have truly different ways of living, different, you know, so it'll be the sort of the unique um, uh, eccentric side of America. Right. The sort of stuff that you don't see on Fox TV, um, on Fox uh, News. Which
1: is the best thing about America, in my opinion. That's one oh, yeah. thing, uh, you know, living. I, so I, much I, diversity. Here. Well, in eccentricity.
0: In eccentricity. Yeah.
1: You, there's not a lot of eccentricity in Spain. Oh, really? no, no, or France, or maybe yeah. in England there's more. I think it's a you know a british American thing yeah,
0: the Brits vary yeah and I think that.
1: it's very much associated with repression and guilt yeah. and shame, so it pops up in these puritanism, bizarre ways, uh, yeah.
0: yeah, the pressure of puritanism
1: tends to yeah. cause eccentricity, yeah, no, it's one thing America, Portland is amazing for eccentricity, <laughs> yeah, just no the kidding. bizarre stuff going on up there.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. So that's what I'm going to try to uh, make this this show about. Uh, I'm going to start hoping to. Uh, so so it will be. Though it's reality, I think it'll be more informative. It'll be, I, I want it to be realistic. I also want it to be funny. It'll just be funny because I'll just you know I'll riff and make it funny. But uh, I don't want it to. But just be stupid. Yeah. Which so much TV is. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I would love to get into that. Uh, I hope it works.
1: Yeah. Well, I hope it does too. Yeah. We need more uh, not stupid TV. <laughs> yeah, here's to non-stupid TV. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, you ever see a show called Rick and Morty? Talking about no. It was, oh, it's a uh, Dan Harmon. You know him? He did uh, yeah, yeah, Community. Yeah, it's a it's a, a cartoon. It's animated. Oh, really? And it's about um, have you ever seen that Rick and Morty? It's um, it's bizarre, man. It's huh. really funny and strange. It's about this the the uncle. Is uh, Rick, he, Uncle Rick, he's a scientist genius and Morty's the kid. And the uncle's always like, you know, don't worry, Morty. Well, you know, I'm making this time machine and we're going to go in the future and we're going to. And, and it always goes wrong and fucks everything up. And he swears all the time and he's always trying to get the kid laid and the kid's all innocent. And it's hilarious and deeply, <laughs> deeply subversive. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well worth checking out.
0: Oh, I think I would love that.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, uh, since it's all about me, go to bizarro dot com. Oh,
1: right. Yeah, exactly. Bizarro dot com. And where's your blog? Is there? Is my the blog is site? on
0: that. Yeah. Bizarro dot com. One z, two r's. Everybody wants to put two z's in bizarro for some reason, but no, just one z, two r's. Bizarro dot com. And that's where my daily comics are, my blog, my opinions. My, there, there's very soon going to be some. <laughs> A lot of hate mail. I love, I always publish my hate mail. Oh, the chiropractic nice. hate mail is on there. That's
1: nice. Yeah. So there's
0: plenty of fun to be had there.
1: Good. All right. Bizarro.com, 1R. <laughs> no, 1Z, no, no, 2Rs. Z R's. Sorry. 1Z, 2Rs. Hey, thank you. Thank you for this. Oh, this thanks was so much. A lot of fun. I really enjoyed yeah. it. It was an yeah.
3: honor. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. about a reputation